you can turn with me to Mark 15, Mark chapter 15. In a moment, we'll be reading together in verse 33 of Mark 15. The author J.C. Ryle once wrote, Without Christ crucified in its pulpits, a church is little better than a cumberer of the ground, a dead carcass, a well without water, a barren fig tree, a sleeping watchman, a silent trumpet, a dumb witness, an ambassador without terms of peace, a messenger without tidings, a lighthouse without fire, a stumbling block to weak believers, a comfort to infidels, a hotbed for formalism, a joy to the devil, and an offense to God. The preaching of the cross, the message of the cross, is at the very heart of the Christian message. It's the reason why we gather. It's the reason why we sing. It's the reason why we exist as Christians. Christ crucified. And if it were not for the account that we are about to read, our faith would be empty. No better than any man-made religion. Everything we have been reading in Mark together up to this point has been leading to this moment. And now, hanging upon the cross, Christ is crucified. We're going to look at the cross of Jesus today. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, we want you to look and see what Christ has done for you. And if you are a follower of Jesus, we want you to look and see and remember what Christ has done for you. Let's read together Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those stood by, who stood by, when they heard it, said, look, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And there were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and of Joseph and, of, and Salome, who, had also, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now when the evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body of Joseph, the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and the Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. Let's pray together. Lord, we, as we look at the cross today, as we consider the, the payment, the price that Christ took upon himself, 
Help us to look and see and remember, and that we would marvel at the power of the cross. In your son's name we pray. Amen. As we look at the cross today, we're going to ask ourselves three questions. I think the passage that we just read actually answers three questions for us. What happened on the cross? What happened because of the cross? And then what happened after the cross? Let's consider these three questions together. What happened on the cross? Well, in verses 33 through 37, we realize, that we, we see that we moved from torment and mockery that he had been receiving. That's what we looked at last week, where, where the high priests and the scribes and the onlookers and even the other thieves on the cross were railing on him, mocking him, and tormenting him. We moved on from that, from the torment he received from the people around the cross to the torment and the agony that he is about to experience from heaven. We're going to see and observe the power of the cross as Jesus is cursed on the tree. So what happened on the cross when Jesus was hanging there, bleeding and dying for you and for me? What was happening? The first thing we see in our passage is that Jesus experienced the Father's judgment. In our passage, it says in verse 33 that when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. From the sixth hour, which would have been noon, to the ninth hour, which would have been 3 p.m., Mark tells us that there is darkness over the whole land for three hours. And it's very clear this is a supernatural darkness. How do we know it's a supernatural darkness? It's noontime. It's in the middle of the day. Some people try to explain it away and say, well, it must have been a solar eclipse of some kind. But that can't happen because it was during Passover, and Passover happens during the full moon, and you can't have solar eclipses during the full moon. So it's not a solar eclipse. These aren't just gloomy clouds. This isn't a sandstorm. This is a deep, supernatural darkness that envelops the land for three hours in the middle of the day. Can you imagine being there on the Mount of Crucifixion and seeing that? What would be going through your mind? This is a truth. This is an occurrence that all three of the synoptic gospels point to. Matthew 27, 45 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Luke 23 says, There is now about the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. What is happening in this moment? Why does Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all make it a point to include the fact that there is a supernatural darkness falling over the land for three hours? I believe it's pointing to the fact that Christ is receiving and experiencing the judgment of God. Darkness echoes the judgment of God. We even see this in Exodus 10, the plagues of Egypt. When the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, and, and a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. This darkness for three hours point to the fact that something terrible is about to happen to Jesus, which we'll hear in his desperate cry in the following verse. You know, during the Christmas season, we celebrate Jesus as the light of the world, but at this moment on the cross, darkness envelops the Son of God. God's judgment is coming upon an innocent Savior. Before Jesus, before Jesus created all things, we know that Jesus existed before the foundation of the world. He was part of the creation, or he was, he was creating the world. Before that time, we see darkness reign. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the earth was out form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. We often celebrate Jesus as the author of life, but now the creator and sustainer of all things is being killed, and darkness envelops 
the land. It's clear from this passage, this is no ordinary death. This is not the death of just some good teacher or courageous martyr. This is the death of the Son of God. And in the moment leading up to his death, the darkness of God's judgment looms. And perhaps you may ask, if Jesus is innocent, if Jesus was the perfect Son of God, why was he experiencing the judgment of the Father? Well, Jesus had already answered this question in the book of Mark that we've already looked at. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man, says Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Later on in chapter 14, Jesus said to them, This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Why is Jesus experiencing the judgment of God on the cross? Because you and I deserve the judgment of God. We see ourselves in the mocking and ridicule surrounding Jesus. We see ourselves in guilty Barabbas. You and I have offended a holy God with our sin. We live our lives for ourselves. We forget the one who made us. And because of this, you and I deserve God's judgment. But here on the cross, we see God's judgment heading toward Jesus, not us. Why? Back in the book of Isaiah, the prophecy, chapter 53, verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Jesus is hanging on the cross as a spotless sacrifice and an offering for guilt. And now the father is crushing his son instead of crushing you. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And on this cross, Jesus experienced the Father's judgment. How did he accomplish this sacrifice? Well, we find the answer in the next verses, because after darkness looms for three hours, the silence is broken by a startling and agonizing cry, and it's coming from the mouth of Jesus himself. Verse 34, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus experienced the Father's judgment on the cross, but secondly, Jesus experienced the very curse of sin. Mark records the Aramaic words of Jesus, the common vernacular of the day, and then translates them for us. Mark records that Jesus cried with a loud voice. And these two terms, cry with a loud voice, are emphatic to describe a shocking and dramatic outcry of Jesus. He shouted, and he shouted with a loud voice. And when you hang upon the cross, you're short of breath. It takes excruciating effort to simply lift yourself up by your pierced hands and feet in order to inhale. And yet the emotional turmoil and agony of Jesus is so great that he uses all of his effort and energy to cry out, and not just cry out, but cry out loudly, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting a Bible verse here. It's taken from Psalm 22. If you read the whole psalm, you'll see a striking parallel to Jesus' experience on the cross. 
The first two verses of Psalm 122, verses 1 through 2, says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Through his agonizing words, we see what Jesus is experiencing on that cross. It's far more than just a physical suffering. Because as he hangs in our place, he is taking our sin. And scripture tells us that on that cross, Jesus became a curse for us. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he redeem us from the curse of the law? By becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And while Jesus never became an actual sinner on the cross, he was still the spotless Lamb of God. Scripture says that our sin was attributed to his account, so that as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, his righteousness could also be attributed to our account. Why was Jesus crying out with such agony? Because he has become sin. Because he has become a curse. The perfect son of God, the spotless sacrifice, is now curse and is now sin for you. The son of God who always had enjoyed close communion and fellowship with the father is now experiencing the judgment of the father and the curse of sin. And he feels forsaken and alone. And that emotional turmoil was enough for Jesus to use all of his energy to cry out with a loud voice. Do you realize that's what Jesus did for you? Not only was he scorned and rejected, not only was he beaten, not only was he hung on a cross, he was the target of God's holy judgment for your sins. He willingly laid down his life so the penalty and payment for your sins could be paid. And the depth of his agony reveals the seriousness of our sin. As we continue reading our passage, we see in verse 35 that someone hears Jesus' Aramaic words, Eloi, Eloi, and mistakenly thinks he's calling for Elijah. They bring him a, a sponge with vinegar or sour wine and say, well, let's wait. Let's see if, whether Elijah will come and take him down. Why were they waiting to see if this Elijah would come and deliver Jesus? Remember in the last passage, they were mocking Jesus saying, let's see if he can rescue himself. Let's see if he can deliver himself and take himself down from the cross. Well, the Old Testament prophecy points to Elijah coming before the Messiah. Actually, the disciples had asked Jesus about this very thing in Mark chapter 9, verse 11 where the disciples asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? So perhaps this individual hearing Jesus thinks that Jesus is making one last desperate attempt to prove himself as the Messiah, asking Elijah to come and take him down off that cross. But Elijah isn't, Jesus is not calling for Elijah, and he's not calling for deliverance. In verse 37, we read, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Mark doesn't provide the content of his cry, but the other Gospels do. Luke 23, 46, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. John chapter 19, verse 30, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, 
it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished is a Greek word which means paid in full. So for this final last cry, Jesus cries out, Father, I commit my spirit into your hands, and it is finished. He experienced the Father's judgment, he experienced the sin's curse, and he did it for you. And he did it that your sins may be forgiven. And now the Son of God hangs dead on the cross. But the outworking of Christ's death is not yet finished. What happens because of the cross? Look with me in our passage in verse 38. And the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom. What is the significance of this verse in Scripture? Well, if you know your Old Testament and you know the sacrificial system and temple worship, you know exactly the significance of this verse. Because this verse points to us when Christ breathed his last, when he paid it in full, a way is provided. And when Jesus breathes his last, we see yet another supernatural occurrence. We saw the first supernatural occurrence when darkness fell over the land from 12 to 3 p.m. And now we see a second supernatural occurrence. Inside the, te- the second wall of the city, up, up to the Temple Mount, if you were to stand on Golgotha's hill and you were to look up toward the Temple Mount, you would see the temple standing there, the symbol of God's presence among his people. And inside this temple hung a large curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place. The most holy place was where God's very presence would rest. And this large curtain separated people from the presence of a holy God. And only one man could enter through that curtain, the high priest, and he could only do it one time a year on the Day of Atonement. And he would walk through that curtain with the blood of a sacrifice to sprinkle on the mercy seat for the sins of the people. This curtain hung as a reminder that our sin separates us from a holy God and that only the blood of a perfect sacrifice could appease the wrath of God. This has been God's message to his people from the very beginning, that your sins must be paid for in blood and your sins separate you from the presence of a holy God. And yet that sacrifice took place again and again, year after year, because Scripture tells us the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. And so the curtain remained in place. But when the moment that Christ breathed his last, what happened? That massive curtain ripped in half, and it tore from the top to the bottom, from heaven to earth, A way to God had been provided through Christ. We read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is... He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Because Jesus takes the curse of sin on himself, the way has been opened for all who believe in him. 
Later on in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Your sin separates you from God. But because Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that curtain, that wall of separation has been torn. And you can have direct access to God, but only through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you have eyes to see it? And this shows us the next thing that happened because of the cross in our passage. Not only is the way provided, but our eyes are open. Verse 39 of our passage, when the centurion who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, spiritual blindness is found. Even his own disciples fail to see clearly what the mission of Christ is. In Mark 8, Peter declares Jesus to be the Messiah but he fails to see the necessity of suffering, and he repeatedly pushes back against the very concept of his Savior suffering. But here at the foot of the cross, we find the first person who clearly declares Jesus to be the Son of God because of his suffering and his death. Jesus said, or the, the centurion says this man was the Son of God, and the reason why he said that is when he watched how Jesus died. The Gospel of Mark begins with these words. That is the account of Jesus, the Son of God. And the rest of the book is all about people wrestling with that and pushing against that and being blind to that reality. And then at the very end of the book, we see who describing and, and identifying Christ as the Son of God? A Roman centurion. Not a priest, not a scribe, not a disciple, not a Jew. A Gentile. Verse 39 says that his confession, truly this man was the son of God, was inspired by witnessing how Jesus died. This man was one who helped crucify Christ. This is a man who most likely joined in the mockery of Jesus. This man was not a disciple, a friend, or an acquaintance of Jesus. He was not even a Jew. This man was a murderer of Jesus. But when this man saw the death of Christ, when he saw darkness envelop the land, when he heard the loud cry on the cross, when he saw the Son of God breathe his last, his eyes were opened and he saw who Jesus was. This is the greatest clarity we read about in the Gospel of Mark, and it comes from a Roman centurion. It is through his death on the cross that he not only becomes sin for us, not only opens the way to God, but also opens our own eyes to see who he is. He is the Messiah, the suffering servant. And it is through his suffering and death that his deity is most clearly seen. Truly, this man was the son of God. The religious leaders remained blind. In fact, they tried to squelch the message of Jesus after his death. The disciples took a little while before they saw clearly, but this Roman centurion saw it. Do you realize that salvation is found not in your effort or in your accomplishments? It is found 
when you see Jesus for who he is and what he has done. Since the way has been cleared, since your sins have been paid for, all you must do is look and live to see the death of Christ for you and say, yes, he is the son of God. I believe in him. Romans 10, 12 through 13 says, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you looked upon the cross? Do you see Christ clearly? Or do you remain blind? Ask him to save you. Believe in him and his death for you. Accept this free gift that was paid for with his blood. And you will be saved. Because of the cross, a way has been provided for us. Because of the cross, our eyes can be opened. Because Christ took the judgment of God and took the curse of sin on himself. Well, what happened after the cross? After this climactic moment, when Christ cries out with a loud voice and breathes his last, Mark continues to describe the events that happen afterward, verses 40 through 47. We see, first of all, that a remnant remains. It's interesting that in verse 40, he starts to describe the women who were there at the cross. There were women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene, the Mary, Mary the mother of James and of Joseph and of Salome who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him and many other women which came up with him into Jerusalem. Do you notice Mark does not mention the 12 disciples in the account of Jesus' death and burial? Where are they? Those who had claimed to follow him to the death were nowhere to be found. Instead, Mark introduces a number of unlikely followers immediately following him after Christ's death. We see the Roman centurion giving him the clearest confession of Christ's identity, more clear even than Peter. In verse 40 through 41, we see these women who had been faithfully following and ministering to him in Galilee. This is the first time Mark's, Mark mentions the woman disciples following Jesus. In their first century context, it would have been sho a shocking description to highlight the women who were the ones faithfully following Jesus. And on top of that, we see it was the women who saw where Jesus was laid and the women who first witnessed his resurrection. Verse 43, we meet another character, Joseph of Arimath Arimathea. Who's this guy? This is a respected member of the council. What council? The Sanhedrin. He was himself looking for the kingdom of God. He's the one who courageously asks for the body of Christ. Who is this man? He is a member of the Sanhedrin, the council that put Jesus to death. And in fact, in the Gospel of Luke, we read this description of Joseph of Arimathea that he had not consented with their decisions and actions. 
So Mark highlights three unlikely groups immediately following the death of Jesus. While Jesus' disciples are nowhere to be found, we see a Gentile's confession, we see women's faith, and we see a religious leader's courage. And these are the ones who exemplify faith at the close of Mark's gospel. What, is, what truth does this point us to? I believe it points us to the truth that when Jesus died, he died for all. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. He is the same Lord of all. And immediately following his death, we see that his death was for all, and it was for the most unlikely of candidates. Jesus died for you. You may not think that you're a good candidate. You may not think that you fit the resume, the job description of one of the 12. Then that actually makes you the perfect candidate for the cross of Christ. Salvation requires only one criteria, faith. You don't need to depend on a status, a pedigree, a performance, or a resume. There is no distinction with Jesus. All who call on him will be saved. So we see a remnant remains, an unlikely remnant. Secondly, we see a death confirmed in verse 42 through 45. Joseph of Arimathea obtains the body of Christ to give him a proper burial because, you see, victims of crucifixion weren't buried. The bodies were either thrown into an open ditch or left hanging on the cross for birds and scavengers. But Scripture prophesies that the Messiah's death would be handled differently. Back in Isaiah 53, verse 9, we see this prophecy, a strange prophecy, a very specific prophecy that would be really hard to fulfill if it weren't for the sovereign hand of God. Verse 9 of Isaiah 53 prophesies that his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Isn't that fascinating? This incredibly specific prophecy states that the Messiah would die a criminal's death and would be assigned a criminal's burial, and yet he ends up in a rich man's grave. Matthew 27, 57 describes Joseph of Arimathea as a rich man who owned a tomb. And as we see the exchange between Joseph and Pilate and the centurion, it becomes clear Jesus has truly died. He didn't go unconscious temporarily, as some people believe, in order to explain away the resurrection. Pilate didn't believe Jesus was truly dead at first, and so he had it confirmed by the centurion. Jesus, the very Son of God, was truly dead. But little did Pilate or even disciples know that Christ was using his death to defeat the one who has the power of death. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus died for you. And there's no denying that Jesus died. But yet through his death, in his death, he was working deliverance for you and me who, through fear of death, are subject to lifelong slavery. A remnant remains, a death is confirmed, and finally a tomb is prepared. And as this chapter comes to a close, we see the body of Christ wrapped in a linen shroud and laid in a tomb cut out of a rock. The stone is rolled in front of the opening, and the dead body of Jesus Christ is sealed inside. But we end today's passage on an 
anticipatory note, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Everything we read today was a bit dark. It's a bit serious. And yet we also saw that God was working salvation through it, that he was clearing the way, that he was opening blind eyes. And now with Jesus' lifeless body in a sealed tomb, we know that God was still working his plan. I want us to consider the prophetic chapter one more time of Isaiah 53, where in verse 10 it says, Yet was the will of the Lord to crush him, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. After the Son of God makes an offering for sin by his death on the cross, Isaiah prophesies that he will after that see his offspring and prolong his days. What is that prophesying? The future resurrection. Because his death is not the end of the gospel. How will this story end? Well, you'll just have to come back next time. (laughs) Did you see the power of the cross this morning? Did you see what Jesus experienced on the cross for you? The judgment that you deserve, the curse that you should bear, he took that for you. He experienced the agony like no other that prompted him to cry out with a loud voice, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is a love like no other. And when he took that on himself, that curtain in the temple was torn in half. A way for you to come to God was cleared. And because of his death, your eyes can be opened to his message. Would you believe in Jesus Christ this morning? If you are placing your faith in anything else, your own effort, your own resume, your own goodness, that's doomed to fail. Because the Bible says that even our righteousness is like filthy rags. But Christ loved us so much that he came and he took the penalty that we deserve. He took the curse that we should bear. And he made the only way. That's why Jesus told, him, I, told his disciples, I am the way the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. How do we respond to that? Well, the scripture makes it really clear. Call on the name of the Lord. Cry out to him and say, Lord, I believe. I believe what you have done. I confess my sins. I turn to you. I want you to be my Savior. And this is Christmas time, right? This is the season of gift giving. This is the greatest gift you can ever imagine. Paid for in full by Christ, offered to you free of charge if you will accept it by faith. He has done everything for you and he calls you to place your trust in him alone. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for the power of the cross that Christ became sin for us. Lord, I pray that we would never get over how powerful the gospel is that it would transform our very lives. Lord, if there's anyone here who is placing their faith in anything else, give them eyes to see. Help them see the truth of the gospel and help them cry out to you for salvation. Lord, for those who know you, I pray that they would, with fresh eyes, rejoice 
that you have taken all their, sin, all their sins and paid for them on the cross. They no longer have to live in guilt and fear and shame because you have bought and paid for their ransom. We love you and we thank you for the cross.